Hi, Salima here, and it's time to put your money where your media is. Please support Making Contact and click the donate button at radioproject.org. Please help us produce our people-powered radio at radioproject.org. Thank you, and here's the show. We have to stop talking about prison not working, but understand it as a force that is generative of violence in our nation, and where our nation will not become safe until we eliminate it. That was Danielle Sered, the founder of Common Justice and author of Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and a Road to Repair. On this edition of Making Contact, we bring you an episode of the Decarcerated podcast. Decarcerated's Marlon Peterson hosts a live conversation with Danielle Sered about the difficult transformation we need to make both as individuals and as a society, before we can replace our system of mass incarceration. The interview took place at the Brooklyn Public Library's Dweck Center on April 10, 2019. Thanks for coming out tonight. So we're having a live recording of the Decarcerated Podcast, and today we have the special treat of having Danielle Sered, who is the author of this book, this wonderful book, Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and A Road to Repair. So usually on the podcast, we speak to people who have spent time in jails and prisons and speaking about their journey to success. And success is relative. It is however they determine, however they define it. But this road is never smooth. And a lot of it intertwines with issues of repairing, whether it be to the communities, for themselves, still to their families. A lot of it has to deal with harm that they are still struggling with, that they may have been the person who have harmed someone. But also what's not spoken about outside is in ways they've been harmed and how that all is messy and convoluted. And your book is in so many ways doing that grappling for us. So I appreciate you with that. So you come out of like the spoken word Come out of poetry. poetry. I did a little spoken word, but it was terrible. Um. <laughs> but it feels like the way in which you use language in this feels like this work of art. There's a particular, I'm going to read this passage. I, I like the way it's written. I'm going to read it as if I was you. We wrestle with the force of this distress in a wide variety of ways. We blame ourselves. We rage. We overwork. We drink and self-medicate with legal and illegal drugs. We withdraw. We trust no one. We attach too intensely. We feel everything. We feel nothing. We become intensely cautious. We take unreasonable risks. We bury our dead. We bury our hearts. We dig everything up. We sleep for days. We can never sleep. We make ourselves invisible. We expose ourselves completely. We cannot feel our bodies. We can only feel our bodies. We eat. We starve. We weep. We cannot even weep. We forget things. We remember everything and we heal. We heal. We rise. We wrestle. And we heal. And we bring others along with us when we do. Um, the question is like, who are we here? Who are the we that we are reading about? So the we is admittedly different in different parts of the book. In this passage, the we is all of us who've experienced harm, which is the vast majority of us. Most of us are survivors, and most of us know things about what the harm we've endured does to our lives, to our relationships, to our capacity to be who we want to be, to love in the way we want to love, to show up to the world in the way we want to and the way the world deserves of us. 
if we were to say in this room, like, okay, everyone who has been hurt, step to the left, and everyone who has hurt anyone, step to the right. Like, where do you stand, right? Like, we stand everywhere. We stand in between. We stand in both all the time. And the criminal justice system assigns us to one space or another, even if we have been hurt the moment we hurt someone else, we are extracted from that category of survivors and sent to the other side of the room of those who have done harm and treated as though we're fundamentally monstrous. Like, I have never met anyone who committed violence who didn't experience it first. Like, I don't know anyone who invented violence. Right? I only know people who survived it and subsequently enacted it. It doesn't mean we're less accountable for the pain we cause. But it does mean that there is something fundamental in us that remains entitled to healing. Because that entitlement arises out of our humanity. That entitlement to healing doesn't diminish because we went on to hurt somebody. Just as our accountability doesn't diminish because we ourselves have been harmed. We can owe and be owed at the same time. All of us do. I think part of the best thing we do at Common Justice is that we let everything be true at the same time. Like we don't allow one truth to cancel out the other. Restorative justice is becoming, becoming this term that people use a lot more so now. I don't know if folks really get it just yet, but you sort of explain that. And the question I have is this, uh, people think that restorative justice is this easy sort of sit around, we hug each other, we talk it out, and then we just, and we're healed together now. The person who did the harm and the person who was harmed. Like, is that true? In the book, it definitely, they had to do. And I was like, well, damn. I mean, so I, I mean, the question, like, can you like speak on that a little bit about in terms of restorative justice and particularly as it works through common justice the organization that you run? Yeah, so I think like, accountability is one of the hardest things any of us ever do. So like, punishment is passive. Like punishment is something someone else does to us and it requires nothing of us. Like all we have to do to be punished is not escape it. We can even try to escape it and still be punished, right? Accountability is different. It requires that we acknowledge what we've done. We acknowledge its impact. We express genuine remorse. We make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those we hurt. And we become somebody who will never cause that kind of harm ever again. That kind of work is some of the hardest work that any of us will ever do in our lives. One of the problems with prison is that prison is antithetical to accountability. It's in a system that breeds denial, where the first person on your side is defense, your defense attorney who you tell you committed a crime and they tell you to say not guilty in the first conversation. Like it begins from there. You go into a context where the vast majority of people are not speaking candidly about what they have done because the context doesn't encourage it. You are separated from the people to whom you owe a debt, structurally, systematically, forcibly, and so cannot hear from them how you affected them. Do not have to look into their eyes, face their tears, face their mother's tears, own their pain, own your part in it, none of that your pathways to repair, the things you could do to make it right, anything from becoming someone in your community who is a force for safety and good to basic things like paying restitution are vastly diminished. 
and the part about transformation, people unquestionably transform in prison. We should credit the people for that, not the prison. They, they transform despite a context mm. that makes transformation nearly impossible. Like people who have transformed in that context have some have a capacity for like clarity and an imperviousness to the kind of structural violence that diminishes who we are as people that we should take extraordinary moral lessons from them because most of us cannot do that kind of transformation even in a context that supports it, let alone one that shuts it down. And so prison does everything it can possibly do to shut down accountability and not only is accountability one of the most useful things ever to crime survivors? Like having someone say, that, like, what I did to you was wrong, and face the impact they've caused and own it and ask you how they can repair it and do that thing. Like, it's extraordinary what that can do for us when we are the ones who have been hurt. I also believe accountability is of deep value to those of us who have caused harm, mm. legal or not. Like when we talk about healing, we know we talk about stages of grief and we talk about this process we go through where we recuperate our dignity, our hope, our connection, our self-love. I think accountability is the corollary for that when we've caused harm. I think when we hurt people, it feels wrong. I think the best word we have for it is shame. It's not a perfect word. It's the closest one I know. And the only pathway I know out of shame is accountability. And in doing that and making that repair, we recuperate our dignity, our hope, our connection, our self-love. That version of repair is the corollary to what happens for those of us who are harmed, who get to grieve and heal. And so there is something extraordinarily important in it, but extraordinarily hard. Like one of our participants who had been gang involved since he was eight years old, who had witnessed more violence than anyone should, survived more violence than anyone should, committed more violence than anyone should. After this circle process, this restorative justice process with the person he hurt, with that person's mother, where he apologized, he made these commitments to how he would repair it, showed up to their pain, all of it. The circle was over and he was asked if he could stay a little late and I asked him why, because it was already quite late. And he said, I just want to sit here for a minute until my hands stop shaking. Mm. Like this is a young man who I'm sure could hold a gun like, steady as day. And he said, you know, for everything that's been done to me and everything I've done, I don't know that I've ever heard a real apology before. Do you think I did okay? And because I think he actually did extraordinarily well, I said yes. And he said, pardon my language, but that's the scariest shit I ever did. There are very few things harder than accountability. Prison is more degrading. It is more dehumanizing. It is more violent. Like, it is uglier than accountability. But I don't think it's equivalent to say that it's harder. The other piece I think that is true is that most of what we offer people who have lost someone or have been hurt themselves is prison or nothing. Right? And it's a terrible choice. Like Nothing isn't a reasonable option when you've suffered an extraordinary loss. And at Common Justice, we take people into an alternative to incarceration for violence. And we only do that with the consent of the survivors. The group we talk to are the subset who called the police, and that even smaller subset who stayed in the process past grand jury. And we ask them, do you want the person incarcerated? Or do you want them in this other program? And 90% choose common justice. 90%. It's a wild number. And 
part of what it teaches us is that you can never predict what someone will do in the presence of options based on what they do in the absence of options. You know, the end of the title of the book is The Road to Repair. What's the end of that road? We're in a space now in the criminal justice world where criminal justice reform is obviously taking center stage, but there are also people within this space who refer to use the A word, right? And that A word is abolition. When I use that word, I always give a shout out to people that, you know, black feminist thought. I think about people like Mariam Kaba, Angela Davis, Beth Ritchie, uh, Ruth Gilmore, who are some of the leaders in that sort of work. Is the end of this road abolition? The short answer is yes. Do you want me to just answer as a yes, no question? No, no, um, I, I'll be fine with it because so, I know you. Um, <laughs> I mean, I think about abolition as a destination, not a strategy, meaning it is a place we get to. It's not a thing that we just do. And part of how we get to the place of abolition is by displacing prison, not by critiquing it, not by shrinking it, though we will do both of those, but by building the things that will take its place. That includes forms of healing, it includes forms of accountability, it includes building power so that we can actually move those things into a space of center practice in our culture. But it means that we figure out a way to render them obsolete, right? Talking about Angela Davis, who asked the question if our prison's obsolete, right? That our job is to make them irrelevant. Our job is to build the things that keep the promises that they make but never keep. So like we at Common Justice are in the business of ending violence, and we know the core drivers of violence are shame, not the large structural drivers, right? So we'll talk about those two, because that's the other part of the end of the mm -hmm. road. But on an individual level, the reason like two people in comparable situations will make different choices about whether or not to commit harm, the core drivers of violence are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. The core features of prison are shame, isolation, exposure to violence, and an inability to meet one's economic needs. That means we've baked into our core response to violence exactly the things that generate it. That is not what a people who want safety do. That is also not a system that is going to be hard to be better than, right? Like we are capable of building things that actually can keep the promise of safety and prison will never ever be that thing. So I think part of why people balk at the idea of abolition is we think of prison as something that is ineffective. That's not quite what it is. Prison is dangerous. Prison is productive of violence. So if something just doesn't work, then maybe you do it, maybe you don't. But if something produces harm, then the urgency about creating something that can take its place is much greater. And so I think we have to stop talking about prison not working, about it failing as though its aspiration is producing safety and it just doesn't quite, but understand it as a force that is generative of violence in our nation and where our nation will not become safe until we eliminate it. The other part is that the road to repair is not just about interpersonal harm. Right? It is about a structural responsibility, is about a responsibility that white people have in particular in relationship to the institutions that have been built in our name, from which we have benefited directly or indirectly, in which we are all complicit even when we spend every waking minute trying to figure out pathways not to be. And so the steps to that, like our repair, I think are the same. I think we acknowledge what we've done, we acknowledge its impact, we express genuine remorse. 
We make things as right as possible, ideally in a way defined by those harmed, and we become a people who will not cause that harm ever again. And it's only in that reckoning that all those other more individual interpersonal reckonings will have their day. Like it's only in context of the larger one that we'll be able to you know, achieve the A word, that we'll be able to actually produce safety, that we'll be able to actually have any chance at becoming the democracy that we've claimed to be for hundreds of years without ever even remotely approaching it. I just want to just quotable that it's in the book and you've said it to me before in conversations and I want you to finish it. The best alternative to incarceration is whiteness and the oldest <laughs> like white folks have been we've all been diverted like we've all had times where someone could have thrown us out and instead of held us closer when someone could have said what's wrong with you and instead said what's happened to you where people could have sentenced us to the max and instead sentenced us to the minimum and so part of our job is to understand that we know how to divert people. We do it all the time. If we didn't, our prisons would be overflowing with white people everywhere. And so we have the mechanisms to do it. And that also means we don't actually have to change a single law to empty every jail and prison in this country because the degree of discretion afforded to our prosecutors in particular, to our judges to a great degree, is vast. They could end mass incarceration tomorrow simply by exercising that discretion differently and by exercising it in the way they do for the vast majority of white people who come before them. You're listening to Making Contact. This week, we're bringing you part of a conversation between Marlon Peterson, the host of the Decarcerated podcast, and Common Justice founder Danielle Sered, the author of Until We Reckon, Violence, Mass Incarceration, and a Road to Repair. To find out more about Common Justice or the Decarcerated podcast, go to radioproject.org and look for this episode. We're opening up for the audience now for any Q&A we have. Thank you so much. Thank you so much for this conversation. And I'm going to ask a question as a psychologist. Just imagine a white criminal, okay, just for a moment, or a white person who's caused harm. And a lot of the work I have been thinking and doing about as a psychologist is are there people who are callous, unemotional, sociopathic, who lack a conscience, who lack empathy? Um, How we deal with those people if they do exist in, sure. in your understanding? Um, I think there are far fewer sociopaths than we believe. And I think most of them are more likely to be CEOs than formerly incarcerated people. And so I think the portion of people who are actually arrested for harm who are sociopaths is tiny. And then there are the people we incarcerate who have committed violence, who people talk about as sociopaths based mostly on what they have done and how they talk about it. And I think in that way, we are almost always wrong. So for example, we will often have participants in common justice. And when we ask them how they think the person they hurt felt at the time, so the person they robbed or stabbed or shot at or brutally beat, people who had surgeries, who were unconscious for weeks, like went through horrible pain, 
And our participants coming into the program will say they think they felt fine. And a lot of the trained clinicians in the room are like reaching for that like red button under the table you ring when you see sociopathy alarms, because it seems to convey a like grave indifference to the pain one obviously has caused. But I think it mistakes something about how we understand empathy, because what fundamentally we think that's a lack of empathy. But what empathy, what I do when I do empathy is that I hear your experience. I think about the closest corollary in my experience. I think about how I felt when that happened to me. I extrapolate from that something about how you must feel. Our participants are almost all survivors of violence. Almost all of our participants are people of color. It means in this nation they have been systematically taught that their pain is not of importance. If they are also men, they have been taught that they shouldn't have felt it in the first place because it's not manly to feel it. And so the convergence of white supremacy and male supremacy means like a profound systemic lesson in disregard for the pain they have endured and insistence that the only right answer to how they feel is either angry or fine. And so when they are asked, how do you think the person you hurt felt, they do empathy. They search their experience for the closest corollary. They remember how they felt, which was quote unquote fine. And they extrapolate from that how someone else felt. That is not sociopathy. Like what that is, is a coping strategy in a society that has shut down almost every public pathway to recognition and repair for people among us who have been harmed. And so I think we have to understand how people do and express empathy, like always in a context of our racialized regard for pain, both past and present. Hey, I know this person. Hey, Sarah. Hey, Marlon. <laughs> um, so I work at one of the public defender agencies here in New York. So I'm just wondering, like, what your experience has been in kind of bringing this vision and this, in some ways, maybe like messier, more complicated kind of work and idea of accountability and justice into such a I think New York likes to think of itself as progressive, but so many of us like in the system certainly see how <laughs> traditional and rigid it can be. And so I'm just curious if you could speak to that a little bit. There are both public defenders and prosecutors who react really strongly against what we do because it's complicated in a way that feels counterproductive to their aims. So prosecutors who think we're soft, defense attorneys who don't like when we say accountability, prosecutors who are deeply offended at the notion that they are not the best spokespeople for victims, defense attorneys who are furious with us when we say we're survivor-centered and assume that means we're enemies. And then the majority of people in both groups, especially of experienced people, experience an enormous amount of relief that there is a pathway that doesn't require them to do the kind of crazy contortions that are required to fit something that is super complex into one of two boxes. 
for prosecutors where they can both acknowledge the limitations of the paltry toolkit they've been given to do what is their allegedly their life's work of ensuring safety. And the more seasoned ones, once they have prosecuted the same person five times, like the second time, they're like, this terrible guy. And the fifth time, they start to be like, this terrible solution, like on some level. I remember when the now district attorney, Eric Gonzalez here in Brooklyn said to me that he remembered the first day he looked at a 50 page rap sheet and saw it not just as a story of the defendant's failure, but as a story of theirs. When he was like, we have had this person in our reach how many times? And then worse things keep happening. Some of that must be about us. So for some prosecutors, there is an extraordinary relief and even appetite to actually be able to do the thing that many of them did come to do, which was to be public servants serving the interest of safety and justice. And similarly with defense attorneys, to be able to advocate for the interests of their clients for reasons other than their client's innocence. Most of what defense attorneys get to do is to argue about the innocence of people they know are not innocent. Like That's a hard job, right? And so to be able to actually make strong arguments in the favor of someone's freedom that is not rooted in a denial of what they've done, for many defense attorneys is like an extraordinarily like relieving way to get to be in the work, an honest way to be in the work, a like humanizing and life affirming way to be in the work. You know, and then others in both of those camps are like remain sick of us for a long time or come around very, very slowly, but we are nothing if not patient. You had I know you had a comment Oh, may I ask what your biggest concern is with or um, what you're most happy about with the criminal justice system right now, with the changes that have happened? Um, yes. Your question. I mean, my biggest concern is that for all the culture has shifted in our increasing shared criticism, like the mass incarceration is a normal phrase to read in the media. That was not true 10 years ago by any stretch of the imagination. For all we have shifted in that, I don't think we have shifted fully enough to consider the question of violence. It's the stories we tell about violence that animate our attachment to it. We don't choose prisons instead of roads and prisons instead of hospitals and prisons instead of schools because we're really concerned about the person who committed petty theft for the fourth time, even though that person may very well be in those prisons we build. We do it because of a story we're taught about some imagined monstrous other, like someone who is not as human as we are, is not capable of empathy in the way we are. That story is as old and as racist as this country. And until we come for that story, like until we come for the roots, all the pruning on the edges of the tree will not shrink it. And the thing I'm most concerned about is that we do not yet have a collective appetite to do that, even among the people who consider the end of mass incarceration a goal they share and even fight for day in and day out. Um, what makes me most hopeful connects back to that 90% of survivors who choose common justice when given the choice, which is I actually believe that those of us who know, like know for ourselves that this solution doesn't work, 
that when we ourselves were hurt, we deserved better, that when we caused harm, something else would have been more effective in transforming us. Like we who know that are the vast majority. And I think we are divided from each other by a narrative that teaches us that we are outliers, that we who think it's broken or strange or soft or naive or silly. And in fact, when we ask those 90% of survivors how, what percentage they think they say yes, almost everyone gives us a number like 10%. So it means that we are in the vast majority and we experience ourselves as a small minority within that, even though our experience and what we want to see is so widely shared. But what that means is that what's required of us is not changing the views of 80% of the country and turning things around. What's required of us is breaking through this narrative that has separated from us in a way that surfaces a profound commonality and allows us to move much, much faster than we have ever moved, even in this last decade of accelerated change. Thank you, everyone. Thank you, Danielle Sered. Thank uh, you, Marlon, always. That's it for this edition of Making Contact. You've been listening to highlights from a conversation between Danielle Sered, the founder of Common Justice, and Marlon Peterson, the host of the Decarcerated podcast. It took place in Brooklyn on April 10th, 2019. Thanks to Decarcerated for use of the audio. You can find them at Decarcerated Pod on Twitter. To find out more about this and other shows on Making Contact, check out our website, radioproject.org. Follow us on Twitter and Instagram or drop us a line. Our handle is making underscore contact. The Making Contact team is Executive Director Lisa Rudman, Producers Anita Johnson, Monica Lopez, and Salima Hamarani, Web Editor Dylan Hoyer, Associate Producer Aisha Chowdhury, and Social Media Mixer Jackie Marusiak. I'm Andrew Stelzer. Thanks for listening to Making Contact. Contact.